anything. So this morning, when the rest of my time, which is not going to be long, on I, my message is actually intentionally shorter than usual for this reason. Plus, I do feel like there's some ministry that's going to take place at the end of our time together that I want to be prepared for. But we have been in a series called Countercultural. And in this countercultural series, um, we have handled a lot of different parts of our journey with Christ that we look at as being different from the culture around us. And again, not just for the sake of being different or sake of being difficult, but honestly for the sake of being biblical and living out biblical lives that love Jesus. And I believe that Jesus himself taught in countercultural ways and in the words that he would use. And today we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about a countercultural love. I saw it fitting to, to close our series with this message because every single thing that we do and everything we single thing that we say should be enveloped in the love of God with one another, with what, how we, what we work, how we serve, what we give, where we go. It should all be enveloped in the love of God. And so we're going to talk about two things today that I believe are two significant heart issues as it relates to, to, to this idea of a countercultural love. And that was, we're going to talk about generosity, and we're going to talk about loving one another. And you're going to find in both of these two, two ideas that we, that we delivered this morning that they're going to be very similar in a lot of ways. You're also going to find that they will challenge you in a lot of ways. They will honestly step on toes. They will make you uncomfortable, but they will also encourage you and fill you with love and grace as we walk out this journey called faith. I believe that when you are wildly in love with someone, it changes things. And that's, that's the point. I mean, when you become, when you're younger, you become wildly in love with what would become your spouse and the changes I'm going to propose and we're going to get married and we're going to live this life and we're going to have children. And th things change when you're wildly in love with someone. And I believe the same thing is true when you become wildly in love with Jesus. I think that I, I don't, I don't doubt that there's a lot of believers that, that, that say, I love Jesus, but if something happens when you become wildly, emphatically in love with Jesus, something changes inside of you. And so some of the things that change inside of you is that God raises up this boldness inside of you to, to make decisions like I'm going to move my family over the, over the pond and go to another country or I'm going to take a step of faith and I'm going to give to someone, I'm going to bless someone, or I'm just going to abandon my lifestyle and abandon my choices and my decisions that have brought me to where I am, and I'm just going to follow after Jesus with whatever and everything that I have. That's, when we become wildly in love with Jesus, it changes things. And so I'm going to talk to you, one of the things that I believe that changes the most is our generosity. And I know the moment I mention generosity, every single person's mind in the room flips and goes to, he's talking about money. Yes. And no. Generosity is so much more than just the change in your pocket. Because at the end of the day, when we compare what we have to what God has available, it literally is change in our pocket. And it doesn't make a difference to me how much money someone makes. If they make $15,000 a year or $250,000 a year, $2.5 million a year, it's change in your pocket compared to what God has to offer. 
And so we're talking about so much more than, than money when we talk about generosity. So I'm going to talk to you for a moment about the origin of generosity, where generosity began. The original origin takes place in Genesis when he created this place called Eden and he gave it to Adam and Eve. Out of generosity, God said, here, everything I have just created is subject to you and it is for you. And then if you fast forward to the New Testament, this is where modern day New Testament generosity began in John chapter 3, verse number 16, which is a, a verse that even unbelievers know. When God said, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God loved the world, he gave. Because God loves us, he gives to us. First John chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says, See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. He calls us his children. E.M. Bounds said this about God, and he said, our being with God is only of use as we expend its priceless benefits on men. So being with God and being in the presence of God and having this overwhelming love for God and for his son Jesus really only has a benefit when you've done something with it. Proverbs chapter 11, verses 24 and 25, the Bible says, Give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. This proverb is talking about a whole lot more than just money. Yes, it is absolutely connected to money, and there is a blessing when you actually give and you're generous with what you have. You gain more. But he says, give freely and become more wealthy. That word wealthy does not necessarily translate to financial wealth. It translates into wholeness of wealth. Your whole life becomes wealthy. Your, your finances become wealthy. Your family becomes wealthy. Your friends become wealthy. Your church becomes wealthy. Everything becomes wealthy. It's a wholeness thing. It's not just a, oh, I got money in my pocket thing. But he says, if the stingy will lose everything, those who hoard all those things, their money, their time, their love, their grace, their mercy, those that hoard those things and keep those things eventually lose everything. This is the truth of scripture. Then it says the generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. That, that part of the passage really jumps out to me is because where, when it says those who refresh, refresh others will themselves be refreshed, the original language, this word refreshed actually is translated as to be saturated and to drink one's fill. So he's saying that if with, my, with what I have to offer, with what I have to give, if I am refreshing others, if I am saturating others, and I am giving others enough to drink their fill and to be filled and full, that's then when I become refreshed. That's then when God pours out everything he has on me so that I am saturated and that I have drank mine to be filled. That's the whole point of what E.M. Bounds said when he said that your, your faith doesn't really matter unless it's benefited someone else. So that's the, the origin of generosity. The practice 
of generosity. Living in generosity is all about being a servant with all God has entrusted us with. Everything from your time, your story, your testimony. Your testimony is a part of generosity because that's what helps change other folks' lives. Nothing is more powerful than when you sit down with someone and you can relate to someone and what they're challenged with and what they're going through and you can say, this is what God has done in my life. Your testimony becomes part of your ability to be generous. But we are called to be generous distributors of love, of grace, of wisdom, and all that we have received from God. Warren Worsby said, ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. Look at that. That's when ministry takes place. See, some folks think ministry takes place when I've grabbed an instrument and I've played or I've sung. Or some people think ministry has taken place when I've grabbed a microphone and I've preached. Or that I have done something that other people, it's a show, it's something that they can see and it shows that I am involved in ministry. But he actually says ministry is what takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. Divine resources meeting human needs. That is ministry. That is what God's called each and every one of us to do. Matthew chapter 10 verse 8 says, freely you received, freely you should give. But here's the challenge in generosity. The challenge is in our perspective of how we view generosity. One of the most tragic weaknesses of the church is the lack of generosity. In order, I believe, to truly adopt the spirit of generosity, we have to understand what generosity is not. So this is kind of where I told you it might step on your toes a little bit. It might cause a little bit of uneasiness in you. But generosity is not reciprocal. It is not based on the possibility of receiving something in return. That is not generosity. Generosity is not promotional. It is not based on the recognition of our contributions. It's not promotional. It's not reciprocal. It is also not conditional. It is not based on the estimation of an outcome. That's the world's, the world's way of giving and the world's way of being generous is what am I going to receive from what I give? How am I going to be recognized for my work? And what is going to be the estimation, the measurable outcome from what I give to someone? When we view things that way, we're viewing things very worldly not biblically. It's a countercultural view of Christ and a countercultural view of life is to suggest, God, everything I have is yours. And that includes everything in here. That includes my wallet. That includes my time. That includes everything that I have in this world. It belongs to you, Jesus. How would you want me to use it? I actually was at a leadership development, a leadership uh, training this past week on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And the superintendent of the Assemblies of God, his name is Phil Schneider. And he's the overseer of all Assembly of God churches, which our church is under the Assemblies of God. And he said his life's mantra is this. I am the Lord's currency. Spend me as you will. And I was just like, whatever that looks like. God, spend me as you will. Not as what makes me comfortable, but spend me as, you're, as you will. So the question that I've, been, that I've seen come up and I've, I've been asked and I've talked about before is, how do we develop this type 
of generosity. It happens in our perspective. It happens in the way that we think. We have to first and foremost, we have to see God as being generous. You know, that seems to be easy. I mean, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, we know that what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. The recognition of Jesus is generous. God is generous for giving his son. Jesus is generous to being obedient to the cross. And we have to have this understanding that God is generous. And then you have to, once you come to that perspective and understanding that God is generous, you have to be generous towards yourself. Wait a minute. That sounds like it's not about Jesus, but that it's about me. No, no. Being generous to yourself is absolutely biblical. You, this has to be right. This heart has to be right before a ministry impact can ever be made for the kingdom of God anywhere else. Here's, here's, here's the point. If you are outside of the will of God and you are living in sin, especially willfully living in sin, then you understand that where, where, I'm, where I'm missing the mark and the things that I am doing are, are absolutely impacting how generous I am, but also how much my heart is connected to Jesus. And so to be generous with yourself is to, number one, forgive yourself. We screw up. We make mistakes and then we wear them. You've come to the cross. God, forgive me. Cleanse me from my unrighteousness. Be the Lord of my life. And at that point, all of our sin and shame is laid down at the foot of Jesus because he bore that sin and he bore that shame for us. It was never meant for you to pick back up and carry and woe is me because I have made these mistakes. Forgive yourself is being generous to yourself. It's all, it's just simply letting your soul shine. You know, God created us in, in body and he created us a spirit and he created us in soul. And the whole idea of being generous to yourself is letting your soul shine. Dealing with your challenges, your issues, your struggles, acknowledging, hey, I am a messed up, low down, dirty dog, to quote one of my favorite preachers, Mr. Nate Terry. And recognizing that, but saying, I am moving forward anyway because Jesus has a plan and a call for my life. That is being generous to yourself. Then you, then so once you've come to this realization that Jesus is generous and you've begun to take care of your soul and, and become whole yourself, you start to practice generosity towards others. This is how this process works. First John chapter 3, verse 17, the Bible says, if someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Woo, he, now he just, yeah, he did that. He went there. He said, you have enough money to live and live well. Living well is very subjective. Don't compare your living well to the person who lives in the 10,000 square foot house. Compare your living well to the person that lives in, I don't know, some shanty in Haiti. Where they're living on $1.25 a day. Compare that, how you live to that. that. Living well is very subjective. But if you have enough money to live well and you see a brother or sister in need, but show no compassion, how can God's love even be in that person? So if you are seeing a need of others and you're not fulfilling the need of others, then maybe, just maybe, according to Scripture, the love of God's not actually even in you. I know that sounds harsh. But this is the reality of practicing generosity towards others. When you see a need, 
I, I recently even just saw on Facebook, and see, like I said, this isn't always about money, but I just saw somebody on Facebook, somebody who attends this church, sitting in their car with their children, noticed someone on the other side of the street struggling, and they got out of their car, leaving their children in the car, went and helped that person who was struggling, and you know why that was amazing? It was wonderful that that person did that. That's a generous heart that did that, but here's why it was even more amazing. Four little eyes in that car were watching. The children are watching, and not just your children, but any child that you see walking this earth and specifically in this church and in your house, they're watching. How many of you ever heard the phrase, do as I say, not as I do? How many of you did what you saw done versus what you heard said? I am, I'm, I'm a model of that. I grew up with a dad who said, do as I say, not as I do, and guess what? I did a whole lot of what he did and very little of what he said. So what are we modeling for our children in a way of, 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 of allowing the love of Jesus to be generous with what we have? You know, I, I model some messed up stuff for my children from time to time. I'm just being real. I'll react poorly in a situation. I'll overreact. Carol, I'm with you. I'll overreact in some situations. But one way my kids will always know, they'll always know the generosity of our Lord because I'm generous with every single thing I have, whether it be my home or my time or my money or even my family, whatever the case is, that's, that's how we ought to live. I may not model everything perfectly for them, but I'm going to try to do my best to model that because someone who grows up with that is, is already growing on the right path. So we, we acknowledge perspective of God being generous. We acknowledge the fact that, that we, it's okay to be generous towards ourselves, And then we start to practice generosity. And then here's, here's the clincher. Here's what will seal that work in your life. Meditate on the word as it relates to generosity. Meditate on God's word. Listen to just a few things of what God's word says about generosity. Proverbs 21, 13. I'm going to roll fast, Nick, so you better roll with me. Proverbs 21, 13. Those who shut their ears to the cries of the poor will be ignored in their own time of need. Proverbs 22, 9. Blessed are those who are generous because they feed the poor. 2 Corinthians 9, 11. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when you take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. See, that's why I love hearing the heart of, of Pastor John and Carol. Because they say it's all about Jesus. Jesus be glorified. Jesus be praised. Jesus be lifted up. It's all about Jesus so that when they've taken their gifts now across the pond to the Czech Republic, people will say, thank you, God. And it's because of the gifts that they have brought. Because again, it is all about Jesus. So meditate on the word. And then if you really want to get into the obedience piece of this, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, bring all the tithe into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have room enough to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. The only place in all of scripture that God says, go ahead and test me, is simply with one thing, and that is called your money. I'm not talking about anything else other than that. Yeah, generosity is much more than that. But as it relates to just simply your money, he says, test me. And I'm thinking, if there's only one place in all of Scripture that God says, test me, and I am allowed to test him, I might as well give it a shot. 
And that's why we've done something in this church from time to time that we call it the 90-day tithe challenge, where we, I have stood up here and I believe so so confidently in the word of God that I say, if you can give, you commit yourself to giving the tithe to God, just the tithe to God for 90 days. At the end of 90 days, if you've not come out more blessed than you walked in, then I'll give you all that money back. That sounds ridiculous. It sounds foolish. Over six years, I've done a tithe challenge four, four, four different times. How many times, four different times I've made the announcement, had at least a dozen people or more say I'm in. How many, how many of them you think I gave a refund to? Zero. Not because we're not, I'm not a man of my word, but because every last one of them saw God do exactly what it says. Open the windows of heaven for you and pour out a blessing so great you won't have room enough to take it in. Like seriously, some of them even within days. I took this tithe challenge, I committed myself to it in my heart, I gave, I gave, I gave, and oh my goodness, all of a sudden, I got something in the mail that I was not expecting and doesn't even make any sense. And it was money. Just, this is just about money, this one passage of scripture. But generosity is a lifestyle that you live. It's not this thing expecting. The only place I believe that you can go into it expecting God to give you something specifically back, tangibly back, is in the tithe when according to Malachi. Because if he gives, he says, if I give it to him, he's going to open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing I have not room enough to store. That's the one thing I think you can look through scripture, but everywhere else it talks about generosity. It's very simply, it is all about Jesus. It's not about what do I get in return. It's not about how my name is promoted, and it's certainly not about what tangible evidence do I have of them doing something blessed with what they've given them. That is what it means to be generous. This countercultural love that God has given us is this generosity. The second thought that I'm going to share with you briefly because it's very similar to the first thought is very simply that we love one another. That we love one another. And let me first tell you real quickly, my walking up to you and telling you I love you while sweet and tickles the ears is not love. Not even biblical love. Because biblical love has an action attached to it. In its original definition, it's actually a verb that suggests that there should be some tangible evidence of your love for me. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, the Bible says this. Jesus' words. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. You cannot even for a moment claim to be a disciple of Christ if you have any hate in your heart or if you do not simply meet the action requirements of the love that Jesus is talking about. And to take that even another step further and to bring a whole lot of discouragement into your heart and life right now, the love Jesus is talking about is this agapeo love, which is the verb form of agape love. And why is that important? Because we are to love each other the way Christ loved us. So if you put that in perspective, I can literally spit on Jesus and he loves me. I can literally walk around cursing his name and he loves me. 
I can literally continue as a believer, as a man of God, continue in the sin of my life and continue rolling through and Sunday morning repenting and say, oh Lord, forgive me. And then go back on Monday and keep on doing and Sunday morning, oh Lord, forgive me. I can willfully sin. I can willfully stab him in the back and crucify him daily and he still loves me. Why is that important? Because that's how he said we're supposed to love each other. Quiet in this room right now. And for good reason. That's a weighty kind of love. But that's the love that Jesus said that we are to give one another. And it's that love that we give one another is how others know that we belong to him. It isn't because I preach. How many preachers have filled pulpits today that are heathenistic on Monday, who aren't living out what they preach on Monday? How many elders in churches are the same way? How many people lifting their hands across the country in church today come Monday, Jesus is far from their lips? That's not the kind of love that Christ died for. He died for the love that involves that even with my own issues, my own struggles, my own problems, my own challenges, my own, dis, my own messed up perspectives, I'm still choosing to love someone by showing them that I love them, by forgiving them when they hurt me, by giving to them when they're in need, by embracing them when all they need is to feel the love of Jesus wrapped around them. Yeah, that's hard. Because I'm asking you, yes I am, I am asking you to embrace the very people who hate you. I'm asking you to embrace the people who look differently than you, act differently, think differently. I'm asking you to love them and embrace them. And as they slap you in the face, I'm asking you to turn the other cheek so you can give them another shot. And once that one is all red and torn up, I'm asking you to do another one. Yes, that is the love of Jesus. That's what he desires for his people. It's a love. And here's, the, here's the thing. When I start to think about this, I start to think about this Jesus who left the comforts of, earth, of home, of heaven, to come to earth, to be born into the sinful world that we have made it, only to then walk this love-filled, joy-filled life that did nothing but bless and honor and be generous to other people to then die a criminal's death full of shame and pain for someone who would absolutely and emphatically declare that he doesn't exist. That's the one he died for. Dying for me is pretty easy now. There was a day in my life it wasn't so easy, but today it's a little bit easier. I'm not the sin-riddled man that I used to be. Still a sinner, no doubt, but not the sin-riddled man I was before I knew him, but dying for the one who would stand in front of him and say, he don't even exist. That's the kind of love that we're dealing with. That's the kind of love that Jesus has. He knew who he was dealing with, and even that he knew them, he would respond in the same way and stretch his arms out and die willingly. Die willingly. It takes a lot more. I, I, I posed a question on Facebook about this, helping me with this message as far as what are some of the ideas 
when you read this passage of scripture in John chapter 13 that I read to you? What does it fill you with? And some of the responses were pretty, pretty amazing. And I've brought in some of that already and some of what I spoke of, but someone said his, his love was shown to me when he'd take the beating that he would take. His love was shown to me when he would be crucified willingly for my sin. One person said it takes, a whole, it takes more energy to hate than it does to love. And then that very same person said love takes effort. This, is, this was, to me, I was like, wow, this might be the statement of the message. Love takes effort but brings more soul peace. And I'm like, wow, love is hard work. But wow, when, when, you, when you are fulfilled and filled with God's love because of the love you spent, it just brings you peace. So how do we accomplish this love? Worship team, come and get set. We're going to close this message with this last part. So exactly how do we accomplish this kind of love? First John chapter 3, verse 18, the Bible says, Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. There has to be an action connected to this love. Ephesians 4, 2 says, Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. In the process of accomplishing this love, Ephesians chapter 4 lays out three things that I think are critical to this, of which I fail, I think, fairly regularly. Be humble. Think of someone before you think of yourself. Not thinking less of you, but thinking of yourself less, if that makes sense. Be gentle, displaying the right blend of reserve and force. Because here's the reality of all of this. It's what I tell my children. If you are willfully in sin and I, as your pastor, allow you just to continue to live that way and just applaud you and say, it's going to be okay. That's not love. That's not love because love says, I am going to bring correction. I'm going to do it with grace I'm going to do it with mercy. I'm going to do it with humility. I'm going to do it as gentle as possible. But nonetheless, there's going to be correction. That's what we do with our children. We love them, so we put them on the path properly, correcting them, disciplining them. That's what love is. Why do you think you do that? Why do you think that's innate? Why do you think that's just in you to do that with your children? Because that's the way it was designed. But it's not just about what we do with our children. It's about how God disciplines us and corrects us. And then finally, he says, Paul says, be patient. That's why I can say I fail in all three of these pretty regularly. Sometimes I'm not so humble. Sometimes I'm not so gentle. A lot of times I'm not so patient. But it's, the word patient literally means to be willing to suffer long. That's what patient means. Making allowance for each other's faults. That's the state of our world today. We do not make allowance for one another's faults. 
We disagree, we cut them off. We think differently, we cut them off. We can't possibly have different ways of thinking within my, within my circle of friends because I, I just can't comprehend that. I can't, I had I, I no, I no room for that. We're not making room for one another's faults. That actually literally means, this is how it can literally be interpreted in the original language. It says, after action is taken and there is still anger and frustration, you're still suffering long. Making room for one another's mistakes is very simply after we've talked about your mistake, after we've taken action, after we've disciplined or we've corrected, are we still patient? Are we still willing to suffer long? That's what it means to make room for one another's mistakes. I'm going to close this message with this story. This is a devotion that was given to me by my wife. And I modified it and shrunk it down because it was a long devotion. But she gave me this devotion and I read it and it was amazing. And so I want you to indulge me for a moment because when I'm done with this, I'm going to give you the opportunity to encounter Jesus. I'm going to ask you which I don't do very often, as you know, I'm going to ask you to come out of your seat. Whether that's coming up here, making room up here, stepping into the aisle, I literally want to pray for every single person who wants to be prayed for, who wants God to, to, wants to experience God on a level that they have not yet, or they just need, they just need to this, this generous spirit of God. They need this, this love of God to consume and overwhelm them because the situation that they're in seems to be overwhelming. I want to literally, myself personally, want to pray over every single person who wants that. So when I'm done with this story, I'm going to open up the altar for us to do that. And that's how we're going to close this morning. Here's the story as I read it to you. The maitre d' wouldn't change his mind. He didn't care that this was our honeymoon. It didn't matter that the evening at the classy country club restaurant was a wedding gift. He couldn't have cared less that we had gone without lunch to save room for dinner. All of this was immaterial in comparison to the looming problem. The looming problem was I wasn't wearing a jacket. I didn't know I needed one. I thought a sports shirt was sufficient. It was clean and it was tucked in, but Mr. Black Tie with the French accent was unimpressed. He seated everyone else. Mr. and Mrs. Debonair were given a table. Mr. and Mrs. Classier than you were seated, but Mr. and Mrs. didn't wear a jacket. If I'd had another option, I would've, wouldn't have begged, but I didn't. The hour was late, other restaurants were closed or booked, and we were hungry. There's got to be something you can do, I pleaded. He looked at me and let out a long sigh that puffed his cheeks. All right, let me see what I can do. He disappeared into the cloakroom and emerged with a jacket. Put this on. I did. The leaves, the sleeves were too short, the shoulders were too tight, and the color was lime green. But I didn't complain. I had a jacket, and we were taken to a table. Don't tell anyone, but I took it off as soon as the food came. The fellow was too kind to turn me away, but too loyal to lower the standard. So the very one who required a jacket gave me a jacket, and we were given a table. 
Jesus offers us a gift, not a lime colored jacket, but a robe, a seamless robe, not a garment pulled out of a cloakroom, but a robe worn by his son, Jesus. Scripture says very little about the clothes that Jesus wore. The clothing of Christ is nondescript, neither so humble as to touch hearts, nor so glamorous as to turn heads. But when Christ was nailed to the cross, he took off his robe of seamless perfection and assumed a different wardrobe, the wardrobe of indignity, the indignity of nakedness, stripped before his own mother and loved ones, shamed before his family, the indignity of failure. For a few pain-filled hours, the religious leaders were the victors, and Christ appeared the loser. Shamed before his accusers, worst of all, he wore the indignity of sin. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24, the Bible says, He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Since he bore the sin of the murderer and the adulterer, he felt the shame of the murderer and the adulterer. Though he never lied, he bore the disgrace of a liar. Though he never cheated, he felt the embarrassment of a cheater. Since he bore the sin of the world, he felt the collective shame of the world. He wore our sins so we could wear his righteousness. Though we come to the cross dressed in sin, we leave the cross dressed in a coat of his strong love, according to Isaiah 59, 17, and girded with the belt of goodness and fairness, according to Isaiah 11:5, 5, and clothed in the garments of salvation, according to Isaiah 61, 10. You have all put on Christ as a garment, according to Galatians chapter 3. It wasn't enough for him to prepare you a feast. It wasn't enough for him to reserve you a seat. It wasn't enough for him to come cover the cost and provide the transportation to the banquet. He did something more. He let you wear his own clothes so that you would be properly dressed. He did that because he loves you. He did that because he is generous towards you. And that's what he desires from you.